Hello and welcome to The Curator on Monaco Radio with me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Over the next 60 minutes, I'll be bringing you some of the very best interviews and reports from the past week of coverage on Monaco Radio. And yes, goodbye Monaco 24 and hello to Monaco Radio. This week we'll report on Finland's membership to NATO. If you ask me, yes, I've been a supporter of NATO my adult life, so there is a reason to celebrate. And especially just looking at the geopolitical situation in Europe Europe right now, so you'd be really hard-pressed to find somebody in Finland who doesn't want to celebrate. Plus, an ode to the color green. As humans, we have an acute sensitivity of place, space and seasons. And so the wonder of shoots pushing out of the ground and buds swelling means that we're most definitely alive and ready to start again. All that and much more in the next hour here on The Curator with me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. We start the show with a titan of the bookstores. It's James Don't, CEO of Barnes & Noble and also responsible for the Waterstones chain in the UK and founder of the great Don't Books. We spoke here at Midori House about what makes a good bookshop. I think, sadly, there have been, well, a decade at least of, of decline at Barnes & Noble and sort of chain booksellers lost their way. Borders, the other big one, obviously went bankrupt and disappeared. Barnes & Noble more or less left as the only sort of substantial bookseller in the United States and it's always, with every passing year, closing a substantial number of shops. And that's part of the function of having you know this, this long history and, and many of the buildings and, and properties being extremely old. So you're always going to be closing a reasonable number. Landlords want to redevelop, the buildings just get too old. Locations change their demographics and things and fall out of favour, malls. Uh, disappear and, and with it the Barnes & Noble that's attached to it. So typically Barnes & Noble will close 20-ish stores every year. The problem was they weren't opening any. Luckily we have both changed the bookselling fortunes of the overall business which then gives one the I, th I think it gives one the financial confidence, but it what it really does is give you the psychological confidence to open new shops again and to do so at scale. Because if you want to grow, you've got to open up 20 to stand still, and then you need to open quite a lot more than that if, if you want to grow in any substantial way, which we do. And that's to repair, I think, the damage of, of the last uh, 10 odd years. There is plenty of demand for bookshops. The bookshops that we have are doing extremely well. If you become a good bookseller, you will find yourself full of customers and therefore it makes sense to reopen shops in locations that have been closed and actually to explore new ones as well. In terms of location, the United States is it quite spread out in the country or perhaps are you focused on the East Coast, West Coast? I'm quite curious, where are the Barnes & Noble's plans for the U.S.? Well, both the existing estate is, in some ways, it's predictable. Um, mm. A lot on the East Coast, as you say, a lot on the West Coast. And then in the major metropolitan areas, you know, we have a lot in each of the big cities, really. Though also, if you knew where the, the real estate people, the property people were located and where they lived, you would suddenly understand why there seemed to be very great concentrations in the Atlanta area, for example, in Georgia, or, or in Dallas, Houston, in Texas. We've got in both of those places large numbers of shops. But basically, we're in East Coast, West Coast and then a presence in literally every single state in the United States. Every single um, one? Every single one. But also some sort of curious absences. Um, none in Washington, D.C. itself, plenty in Virginia. 
more or less deserted the metropolitan city centers other than New York City. So again, getting back into those kind of locations seems extremely important. Tell us about some of the changes you've implemented or still want to implement, because, of course, it's a long process. I mean, there's so many shops. I mean, it's not, I'm sure it's not an easy task. But the shops itself, they changed. I mean, because, of course, it's a bookstore, but they were selling all sorts of things. You know, they were selling, you know, batteries, a lot of board games, toys, which I'm, I'm sure some of them are still selling it. But there are more books, right? That's perhaps the secret of the success, too. I think certainly becoming a, a good bookseller is a secret to mm. selling more books if you are a, a bookseller. And sadly, that mission, I think, had been diluted and the business itself had been run by retailers. And retailers in all other sectors have a you know simple proposal, which is we decide what is the best form of chemist or women's clothing or whatever it is that you do. And then you replicate that precisely and identically across all of your stores. That's what Zara does. That's what Boots does, Walgreens, Best Buy, Curry's, whoever it might be, whatever you're selling, you decide on your retail model and you execute it precisely and identically across the nation. And that's what customers expect of you. The trouble with books is if you do that with books, you end up with some sort of identikit type bookstores, same books in the same place, is really very boring. Trying to create these sort of everyman bookshop, I think, is a mistake. And what we've done is decentralize very substantially, leaving the responsibility for how they merchandise and which books they put where and how they replenish their books entirely in the hands of each of the bookselling teams in each store. And then, as you say, really being quite rigorous around what are the other things that we sell alongside books and being sure that they complement books, which is a simple enough test. Uh, do they challenge the mind? Are they about writing and paper that is a a decent test and if they don't pass that we shouldn't have them in our store which is why things like batteries have, are no longer <laughs> in there and, and we no longer sell sort of great mounds of drinking water and and the other things that frankly also visually made our shops much much less attractive but really book selling is around individual booksellers deciding what their customers want and presenting those books which will be different in each store as attractively as they possibly can it's i, I love this idea that you're giving more freedoms to the stores to you know to showcase the books they want because perhaps someone in dallas might be different from someone in new york as well is that something that you've learned here in london with don't books as well because i also feel that the don't bookshops, they are quite personalized in a way as well. Yes, I, I, for uh, more than 20 years, 21, mm -hmm. 22 years, um, I sat in Maribyrn High Street and sold books out of Dawn Books, and that was my shop. And mm -hmm. we opened up uh, new Dawn Books here and there, largely because people in Maribyrn High Street got sort of slightly fed up and, and wanted to do their own thing. But each of those sort of crafted their own shop and, and the one in Hampstead was different to the one in Holland Park and, and so it went on. So, I, and you know, frankly, I had not a great deal of interest in, in what they were up to. I, I was only interested in what I was up to and my customers. And I took that ethos then first to Waterstones and Waterstones effectively had gone bankrupt. And by putting in that ethos and that book selling philosophy, Waterstones began to succeed and, and in fact succeeded tremendously well and now that we're doing it in the United States we find that actually if you let booksellers get on with their trade they are to varying degrees good at their craft and where they're good you do extremely well and where you do badly you, you need to go and get the neighboring bookseller to go and help so you keep it local keep it focused on the individual teams and to the extent that we centrally do anything, it is to support the stores, sometimes just in very boring things like money to replace the light bulbs and mm. fix the escalators or whatever else from the fabric of the store. 
but also just to challenge and articulate the principles of good bookselling and, and challenge the teams to meet those. And now it's time for a report by Monaco's Chris Chermak, who was reporting from the Trump Tower to talk about the turbulent week for the former U.S. President Donald Trump. If Monday afternoon's spectacle outside of Trump Tower was a precursor for Tuesday's arraignment, then Donald Trump's support is hardly what it used to be. There was a gaggle of a few dozen cordoned off supporters in the hours that Trump was due to arrive. They were outnumbered by the NYPD, the media, curious New Yorkers and tourists. The scene was more circus than one of bubbling violence, underlined by a police officer arguing with a protester literally dressed as a clown who had been especially disruptive to television media, set up along a stretch of Fifth Avenue. These people are doing their jobs, okay? They are, they are doing their jobs, and you're interrupting them. A block down on Madison Avenue, police are debating what to do with another curious gaggle of Asian Trump supporters who keep ignoring demands to move further down the street, away from the cordoned-off portions of Trump Tower. They eventually settle on pushing them another five meters up the block. The leader of the group, originally from China but settled in Queens, is particularly passionate. Trump is trying to save this country and uh, fighting for our people, we the people. And uh, the establishment are corrupt. They are bought by CCP. I came from China. I know how evil CCP is, okay? Mm-hmm. Yeah. You think the establishment is bought by CCP? Yeah, by CCP and globalists and deep state, you know. Yeah. They're very complicated. But CCP is part of the evil plan. They're going to take over America if, if America continue to sleep. And Trump would stop that? You've... It's already too late, already. 2020, our country already lost, okay? It is a coup, it is a coup, you know that. It has been a while since the Trump media circus came to the Big Apple. Though this is the city where he made a name for himself, these days Trump knows this is a largely hostile town, which probably explains the limited supporter group. By contrast, the man who's looking to put him behind bars Manhattan District Attorney Alvin Bragg, won more than 80% of the vote here. One television reporter based in New York with Al Jazeera says he doesn't remember this level of spectacle here since, well, the early years. He hasn't come back to New York a lot in the last six years, but I was here outside Trump Tower after he was elected, and it was a similar scene to this, you know, so yeah, it reminds me of the week after he was elected and he was in Trump Tower. And we were all standing out here to see who was going to come talk to him, uh, soon to be president-elect, and now here we are, what, six years later, talking about the same guy, uh, now ex-president, being indicted. While the circus may have left town in recent years, many New Yorkers say they've lived with Trump and his antics for decades. A few locals on hand at Trump Tower can't resist stirring the pot, like one guy who yells, lock him up, as he passes by the unfolding scene. Been living in New York for a long time, yeah, for decades. Yeah, before he was the president, before he was, uh, you know, on TV and all that stuff. So, we New Yorkers know that he's been a criminal for a long time, threatening with his, even with his dad, with real estate stuff. These people in the Midwest, they don't know that history. So, but there is also some genuine concern about what might happen today, the day of Donald Trump's actual arraignment at a Lower Manhattan courthouse. One opponent of Trump's told me he was happy to protest outside of Trump Tower, 
but he's not sure yet whether he'll make the trip down to the courthouse, whether it's worth the risk. Another New Yorker who supports Trump scoffed at the suggestion. I think there's going to be a lot of people. Somebody asked me, I, they asked me if I thought there was going to be any trouble. And I said, well, not from the Republicans or conservatives. I said, probably from the left wing. Trump himself plans to be in New York for all of 24 hours. He was reportedly dissuaded by advisors from appearing publicly and causing his Secret Service detail a major headache. That advice was not heeded by the far-right Republican Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene, who says she will hold a rally not too far from the Lower Manhattan Courthouse, prompting a very specific warning from New York's Mayor Eric Adams. We are the safest large city in America because we respect the rule of law in New York City. And although we have no specific threats, people like Marjorie Taylor Greene, who is known to spread mis misinformation and hate speech, uh, she stated she's coming to town. While you're in town, be on your best behavior. While Marjorie Taylor Greene steals some of the limelight, Trump himself will be fingerprinted, get his mugshot, and appear in court to answer criminal charges behind closed doors. Only after that will the actual indictment that Trump faces in New York be unsealed, and already rampant media speculation about the prospects of a former president being convicted of a crime can begin in earnest. You are listening to The Curator on Monocle Radio with me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Also this week, Finland became the 31st member state of NATO. Finland's President Sauli Nilisto, Foreign Minister Pekka Havisto and Minister of Defense Antti Kaikkonen have all flown to Brussels for the flag-raising ceremony, where they joined U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken and NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg. Let's hear more from Petri Burtsov, Monaco's Helsinki correspondent. It's been quite a roller coaster ride. I mean, you're absolutely correct. I, I said that, you said that, the Prime Minister Sanna Marin said that, the President Niinistö said that. For as long as I remember, you know, a great majority, two-thirds of, of Finnish population have been against Finland joining the NATO. And then, you know, we saw a, a dramatic turnaround pretty much as soon as Russia attacked Ukraine in uh, popular support for, for NATO, you know, and the support went sort of to, to completely uh, unexpected numbers, 90% or even more of Finns uh, in favor of Finland joining. And then the whole process of Finland and Sweden applying, and then sort of the high hopes of Finland jo joining the delay with Turkey and Hungary in particular, and, and then finally coming uh, up to this historic uh, momentous day. Do you think there's a reason for celebration? Um, if you ask me, yes, I've been a supporter of NATO my uh, my adult life, um, so there is a reason to celebrate. And especially just looking at the geopolitical situation in Europe, Europe right now, so you'd be really hard-pressed to find somebody in Finland who doesn't want to celebrate. There is just, uh, uh, you know, a tremendous sense of... of uh, of security that this this gives Finns, and in a way, I would also say uh, this marks the official end of the so-called Finlandization. Uh, you know, Finland having to bow to to um, first Soviet Union and then then Russia. Of course, you know, we've had to sort of watch what we say diplomatically up to this day with regard to Russia. Uh, so so you know, it's it's really a historic day. 
As you pointed out already, there's been a huge focus on how Finland's NATO membership will give the country security guarantees. But at the same time, it also means that Finland will have to be ready to defend its allies. How much has that aspect been discussed in Finland? I, I think it has not been discussed enough. This is, you know, this is again a, a, a complete sort of a 180 degree change in how Finland looks at its defense. Finland has been um, ever since uh, the end of World War II. Finland has really had to focus on being able to defend itself, uh, and we have a very large um, army, 280,000 soldiers and 900,000 of uh, reservists, one of the largest armies in in Europe. And and now, you know, uh, our army has to defend not only Finland, but all of NATO, all the 31, uh, soon hopefully 32 uh, NATO members. So it's it's a complete paradigm shift in the way we look at security and defense. Tell me more about how this will change the way Finland views itself and its place in the world. You already said that from now on Finland doesn't need to bow to Russia at least. Yeah, I think this is the, this is, um, the last sort of uh, step in Finland becoming... Um, a member of the European family of course we've been members of the European Union since 1995 but it's it's sort of some some observers in Finland had have seen, have sort of defined this moment as the final step in Finland um casting behind the shadow of the cold war and really becoming a, a European um, nation What will happen a bit later today in Brussels as I mentioned already for example Finland's foreign minister and the president have both flown to Brussels Yes, so in about 20 minutes time, the Foreign Minister Pekka Harvister will sign Finland's accession documents. Then um, an hour later, he will uh, give those documents to uh, US um, Secretary of State Antony Blinken. And then at, um, I believe it's about um, um, 4 p.m. finished, Uh, Finnish time, uh, so 2 p.m. London time, uh, Finland will uh, then officially be a, a member and there will be a flag hoisting ceremony. Finland's uh, flag will fly um, at the NATO headquarters in Brussels. And what will happen after that? What is expected at the moment? Do you think Finnish people will notice something changing immediately? I don't think that much will change, I mean, at least visibly in the Finnish cities. I mean, let's remember that Finland is already a very NATO-compatible um, country and has been for, for decades, really. So we won't see any drastic changes. We you know, we there, we haven't decided whether or not there will be NATO bases or NATO troops in Finland or, the, you know, let, let alone talk of, of nuclear weapons in, in, in Finland. So all of that is something that we will have to discuss uh, in, in the future, but that is It's not something that we'll, you know, we will see in the streets of Helsinki, for example. Mm. Well, looking at news from Finland at the moment, it's just been reported that there is a cyber attack going on the Finnish Parliament's website. Obviously, we can speculate who may be behind that this day. But my question, anyway, is what has the reaction from Russia been so far? Well, you know, uh, about the attack, we've seen similar attacks before, and, and let's face it, we all know who is who is behind those attacks. Russia has, and we've heard the same rhetoric uh, from Russia as we have before. They say this as a, they see this as a direct uh, threat uh, towards uh, Russia, you know, an independent nation on their border joining a, a defense alliance. But they, that this is what they've said all all along, so this is not surprising. We can expect in some sometime in the future, we can expect more uh, Russian troops to be based uh, station closer to the Finnish border but that is not something that we will see now all of their troops are tied tied in uh, tied up in Ukraine and for monocon culture this week we meet Emma Warren author of dance your way home 
a journey through the dance floor. There is a connection between home and the dance floor as I see it. I consider it to be a place where you can find a version of yourself that you believe in, where you can find some of the relationships that perhaps replicate what families can bring. I've experienced that and I've spoken to lots of other people who have and I think often people conflate dance floor with like rave and they go straight to drugs or they go straight <laughs> yeah. to pulling and um, I just think it offers so much more than that so I'm trying to kind of um, expand what we think the dance floor is and that it's the nightclub but it's also the village green or the crossroads mm. or the kitchen and so the, the Dance Your Way Home part of it, to kind of actually try and answer what you asked me. Uh, rather <laughs> I, think, than just I think we almost got there, though. Freestyling. <laughs> um, but that's what it's all about, isn't it? Is that I actually was playing around with words to do with house because I have this kind of long and abiding relationship with house music. Mm-hmm. And also I feel the dance floor as a place of safety, of sanctuary. And that's certainly been true, particularly for communities that experience maximum marginalisation, communities of colour, people that are racialized, people who experience homophobia, all the isms. So I was playing with words to do with house and home. And then I just had this feeling of like, actually, what I've always been able to do on the dance floor, wherever I found it, is to come back to home. And, and the body is the original home, isn't it? And so I could come back to something within myself, which would allow me to feel more grounded and navigate whatever whatever the next day or the next hour or the next minute was going to have within it. Nice. And there is something about that, perhaps in what you're saying as well, that kind of comfort in crowds. Even if you're a a bit of a shy person, you talk a bit in the book about being, you know, every 16-year-old is most most of them, they've got their head screwed on, right, are probably fairly backwards and coming forwards. You kind of, you tend to think the comfort in crowds comes out of of this a lot. Um, And you, as a 16-year-old, were going to heaven, in London, a legendary um, nightclub. Can you tell us a little bit about being in that queue, the, the sights and sounds and smells of being a young woman, very young woman, coming up on the train from Orpington mm-hmm. and going to that place? What, can you paint to our listeners a little picture of the excitement, the nervy excitement I expect yeah. of nights like that for you? Absolutely. And I love the fact that you talked about togetherness and the kind of like the comfort of crowds because I think we're a really communal species and I think we crave it and find it even if it's not easily available. And it wasn't massively easy available to 16-year-old me, although it was available enough for me to be able to find the other people that wanted to get there as well and to like go in a little bundle on the train with my friends from Orpington College and get ourselves in the queue on a Thursday night outside the opening night of a club called Rage at Heaven underneath the arches at Charing Cross. And Rage went on to have a very legendary status because it became the place where jungle and drum and bass kind of began. When I went, this was a couple of years before, it was the beginning, it was another acid house night. So it was very, very exciting. It was half term. This is the only reason I could actually get myself up there. There's all this kind of like, I love this kind of amazing like squareness about the story that I'm telling that, you know, I'm not, it's not cool. But I enjoyed being in the queue. The queue was very exciting. You could hear the music coming from the outside because in the era before sound limiters and decibel monitors, you felt the noise before you heard it. And so the emergency doors would be rattling. It was very, very exciting. And inside, this is a large club, a famed club, a club built on queer culture because it was London's first, as they would have said then, gay club. Mm-hmm. And, you know, people paid the price for going. People in the queues, there was a, a case earlier in 1988 where some people just queuing up to get in the club were attacked by some football fans and, you know, brutally injured and it all went to court. And, you know, so this is like a place where people had to really 
make the effort to go. Yeah. And I, I feel that it shows in the roots of it. The foundation was built by communities that were experiencing hardship and then, um, you know, we kind of like went up on the train from Orpington yeah. and, and really made the most of it. So, yeah. And you mentioned there, you've mentioned sort of Jungle and Acid House and different sorts of music coming out of these scenes, out of these particular nights mm. at particular venues that you've seen. You, you talk about it a bit, a bit in the book, but you've seen great kind of genres of music kind of come and go and evolve. And you've seen sort of in kind of vinyl terms, the, fir the first test pressings of certain types of music <laughs> live in front of you, played by a DJ in front Quite of an amazing crowd. How does that feel, kind of documenting that through the book and then trying to remember some of those nights, I'm sure? You seem to have kept a pretty good diary. It's all in the body. I, okay. didn't, I didn't have access to any of my teenage diaries. Okay. It, okay. I just had to remember it by moving to it. Right, so you put on a certain record and you've mm. got like a, it's a Proustian Madeleine for you. I you guess kinda, so, yeah. yeah. Yeah, with just like really big bass lines. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, yeah. But say again what you said because there was, it triggered a thought in me. Oh, I yeah. know, you were talking about this. See, um, the, listening to yes, the evolution yes, yes, of yes. music. Thank you, thank you. Yeah. The thing that I want to say about that is this makes me feel so unbelievably encouraged about what will happen next and then what will happen after that next and then what will happen after that next because I have a long enough long view to know that nothing ever dies. And people sometimes will say, oh, you know, insert name of genre, mm -hmm. so such and such is dead, such and such is dead. It's never true. The music just keeps on evolving in response to the need of people as they express it on the dance floor. And that is happening right now. And it will continue to happen, particularly in cities where you have people who come from a range of backgrounds who are allowed to associate together, allowed to, who can find spaces either to associate together or to associate with the people who, like them, have a need to dance out certain types of life experiences. You kind of touched in there on the boundary breaking that dance can provide and different ethnicities different classes of people all sorts of you know it, that that melting pot on the dance floor is something is something super important mm. isn't it a kind of mixed place obviously clubs attract certain people or they're you know in ma music magazines or style mags you used to get pictures of people in clubs and queuing for clubs tribes of people kind of street style kind of pho photography of, of people going to clubs and stuff like that and you would maybe think oh, I could go I can go in there I could get in there because I'm a bit like vaguely someone like that mm. um what about the tribalism because there is sort of tribalism in club culture but it seems pretty benign mm. at least in the you know through the book as you describe it is that is that a, is that the right call to make yeah I mean I'm not saying the dance floor is like a perfect place or utopian sometimes dance floors can be risky can be dangerous can be violent mm. I you know this is also the case. But I think I see the dance floor in its broadest sense. I see the dance floor in its broadest sense, you know, the sort of the village green, the school disco, the nightclub, as a place in which um, we can experience dance as a technology of togetherness. Because there's so much good evidence about when you dance with other people, you like them more. You know, if you get primary school children to move in synchrony with each other, move their arms side mm -hmm. to side or step side to side, they rate each other more highly afterwards. They like each other better. And so, you know, sometimes people say, oh, like, dancing's not political. That's not what we thought we were doing or find it difficult to articulate why. And actually, I found it difficult to articulate why this stuff is political until I realised we can see its political nature in state response. OK. So, By how, pe how people want to close stuff down. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's obviously political because the state will respond in a way which suggests that the state thinks something is happening, mm -hmm. even if we don't. And I was not expecting to write a book in which the police appeared so frequently, but they do. 
the police appear in almost every chapter. Mm. You know, we're talking just a week after the Baroness Casey reports just come out, talking about, you know, institutional racism, misogyny, corruption within the Met Police. And then in a way, what I'm seeing in my book is the fact that state actors, the police in particular, will just appear wherever the dance floor yeah, appears. Yeah. And that also helped me understand the ways in which dancing together will cause a response from the state, which perhaps reflects how powerful it is. UBS has over 900 investment analysts from over 100 different countries. Over 900 of the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in the world of finance today. To find out how we could help you, contact us at UBS.com. The Foreign Desk is Monocle Radio's weekly world affairs programme. We tackle the biggest global news stories as well as those too often left untold. I've been out on the streets of Lagos. People are unable to withdraw their cash. Fights have broken out in banking halls. As well as the occasional retelling of events from days long past. The gates opened and in came this horse, absolutely huge, made of wood. People were asking, you know, what's it for? Is it some kind of icon? Our expert guests offer in-depth analysis and first-hand experience. There were a lot of diplomatic efforts by NATO and NATO allies. We really made big efforts to convince Russia not to invade. The Foreign Desk with me, Andrew Muller, is available every Saturday from midday London time, right here on Monocle Radio. You are listening to The Curator. The latest episode of Comfort Corner is the kind of fresh, zesty, plucky injection of color that's often enough to revive you from the torpor of winter. To offer us a musing on the bright and vital palette of spring, we ask the founder and colorist of Atelier Elise, Cassandra Elise, to give us a love letter to the color green. There is a moment in the nothing days of March where everything loosens, the ground swells, and we breathe in the new light. Seasons talk in colour and early spring-sized green, that murmuring soft green that we humans have been waiting for. We know green lands and surges every year, but it always feels deeply hopeful, offering the much-needed confirmation of new life, all the potential for a different way of living. The glaucous and gleaming green that climbs out of the earth signifies that life in general is about to get better, more light, kind of sunshine and fewer clothes. The first day you can open doors and step out onto fresh warm grass is a memorable one indeed. We know that spring arrives without fail, but we have such an emotive response to it when it finally does. As humans, we have an acute sensitivity of place, space and seasons. And so the wonder of shoots pushing out of the ground and buds swelling means that we're most definitely alive and ready to start again. Spring green has a life in it. Rather than the sun-bleached green of late summer, there is a feminine undertone to early greens, pinks and a freshness at the core. It's a green that has just woken up rather than ready to fade. When I start to think about making a new colour or palette, I look to people, words and place. Colour represents an abstract quality in our emotions. It's something we don't always understand, but I try to put the nebulous into visual clarity. A feeling becomes a colour. 
We have a green in our collection called Pihau Green. It relates to Pihau Beach on the west coast of Auckland. And when I was a teenager, my friends and I would spend our last summer days here. The flax was bleaching out, sun waning, and school was fast approaching. So Pihau Green represents a longing and a readiness, as well as a visual reminder of what late summer sun feels like. Other times, it's people who inspire. One of my favourite colours in our palette is Winifred Green. The colour itself is made up of five different pigments, mostly earth, but with a whiff of magenta added to ensure its magical hue. I use magenta in the colour formula because of Winifred Nicholson, the 20th century British painter on whom I base the colour. Most greens are a simple combination of yellow and blue with added black or white. But we mix paint colours like an artist. We add umber, magenta and ochre pigments to the formula for Winifred Green. And the difference is palpable. It's nuanced and alive and we hope a valid ode to this incredible painter of flowers and landscapes. Nicholson saw light and colour in a joyous and deeply loving way. Magenta was a huge surprise, hiding in plain sight within many of her paintings. I know I could have made a colour that was representative of this, but the more I read about Nicholson and researched her paintings, the more I felt she was definitely green. She was a feminine, natural, domestic and optimistic green. A colour that I hope is a conduit to breathe in all the goodness of her work and views on life. I believe that every home can be coloured in with the emotions and hopes of the right life for each of us. You just have to notice the change, a little like the seasons. Welcome spring, and thank you Winifred. And this week's Global Countdown, where I look at the top five singles of a specific country, was very special, because I chose five tracks that kind of represents the spirit of Monaco Radio. I've added 50 tracks to the playlist. You know, it's a fresh start. I hope you enjoy the songs. We have selections from five tracks. Uh, and either of you take your pick. Which one would you like to queue up first? Well, we are going to start with a classic. And by the way, Andrew, the majority of our tracks on the playlist, they're new songs or from last year. But sometimes I do like the classics. I think they're quite grounding. We need the classics to survive mm -hmm. in a way. Sorry, I'm being, I'm being very dramatic here. But this song <laughs> is magical. And this band was part of the Italian New Wave movement from who, the late who 70s. Who can forget? Who can forget? I mean, they were so influential to new singers like Caroline Polacek. And this song for me, it is magical and languid, like Monaco Radio, is Mattia Bazar with Souvenir. Did you see David Stevens' face? I mean, it's, I, I the, it's that face. I, I, I can see a listener doing this kind of movement. You no, know, I think I, I thought that was terrific, and I enjoyed it very much. At least that's what that's what it says here. <laughs> no, um, no, no ge ge genuinely, uh, Fernando, that there is you can you can hear a lot of Saint Etienne in that, uh, yeah. for example, who I know were tremendously influenced by the European pop of that era. Absolutely, um, and again, I'm very happy the Matia Bazaar. But I think this is the moment that we're all waiting for. It is time for Swedish fruity disco. <laughs> and, and can I? 
just explain why it's fruity? Oh, please, because, please. Because it is fruity, you know. It, it, basically, the track we're going to listen is called Maracujá Massage. Maracujá, of course, is passion fruit. And the other tracks from his catalogue is Satsuma, Chili Banana, Fruity Mango. Oh, I see. So it is both literally and, if you will, spiritually fruity. Yes. That's so, amazing. you know, you might, you might be listening to this in your, I don't know, in the beach Do you club. think it has great popular appeal? Yes. Uh, sorry, I'm, yeah, I'm, 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 <laughs> Oops. <laughs> yeah, I'm doing my best over here. But I hope you guys like it. I mean, his real name is Elinos Hasselberg, but I think he got a sexier name here, Stuzi. And this is Maracujá Massage. That, that was terrific. I enjoyed it tremendously, or at least that's what it says here. That that, that was a, a, a Swedish fruity disco. They, we need a, a few good uh, vibes here at the Monaco Radio, right? Absolutely, and that that kind of covers the two vibes, right? We had a, a nice languid one to start with, and now a bit more upbeat and a bit fruity, as, as we said. Well, indeed. So, do, <laughs> is the next track both languid and fruity, or neither? It's a bit languid. It's not fruity, ah, okay. I have to say. bit languid, not fruity. Yeah. So, uh, on, only one of the key boxes <laughs> ticked here. Exactly. And, to be honest, I have doubts that if, you, if you're going to like this, but it's... I, I share those doubts, Fernando. <laughs> it's very gentle. It's the best of Brazilian jazz, but there's lots of African influence here as well. And it's almost also a little bit r and uh, so basically it's a trio. Their name is Caixa Kubo and they invited a very famous Brazilian singer called Xenia França. It's a beautiful track. This is very gentle. This is, you know, you're having a martini and, and finishing your article for for a newspaper. Sorry, I'm being very specific here. So so you, you write while drinking martinis, Fernando. Is that what... Is that what time to time. That, that time would, to time. Would, it would explain a fair bit. Um, let, let's hear some of it. Even if you don't want, I'm closing now. Dreaming of a sky fall, clouds full of sound. I mean, it, it does prompt the question, David: Is the primary bar for inclusion on the Monocle Radio playlist basically sounds a bit like Saint Etienne? Maybe, yeah, or, or can drink a martini too, which, uh, you know, the control room had doubts. But I could see Fernando, you know, just sipping a martini to that one. Well, I, can I see mean, that he, as well. he's literally doing it right now. <laughs> started, a bit, started a bit early, perhaps. But, um, I, I can see from the running order, uh, Fernando, that I, I'm, there is going to be consensus about the next trap because who is not a fan of Alison Goldfrapp? Uh, certainly, no, when I was about to say certainly not me, I, when I say not me in this context, I mean I would not count myself among the people who are not fans of Alison Goldfrapp. And she's excellent. And it's, it's you know, she's about to release her first solo album mm-hmm. as well. It's going to be called The Love Invention. So also languid. There is a theme <laughs> here. There is a theme here for all the five tracks we're playing. It's hypnotic. It's great. And, and, and Dave, we had Goldfrapp before here on the playlist. It's not a new thing as well, right? Plenty of gold frap, um, but this one is is a is a great new addition. Love it. It is so hard and so hot. That's the name of the track by Alison Goldfrap. I was starting to worry. <laughs>
Alison Goldfrapp, as heard on Monocle Radio, absolutely no problems there, obviously. No problem. That's got to go in the fruity, fruity bin as well, yeah, right? Yeah, it's a bit fruity, I, actually. But, but, I, but I think it is also very arguably languid. <laughs> Uh, the, the, today's final track, Fernando, is is it languid or fruity or perhaps all of the above? That's languid and smooth, I have to say. Uh, and that, was that smooth with a V? Oh, oh sorry, that's my Brazi- <laughs> that's my Brazilian accent for you. No, that's... no, I think that's I think that's fine. I think smooth and smooth, smooth. Are, are two very very <laughs> different yet subtly different things. This track for me represents Monaco Radio in many ways because the group is called Tapioca. They are a Belgian Brazilian duo, and they're based <laughs> in Kigali as well. <laughs> okay, I mean, so so they're, they're one of those Belgian-Brazilian Kigali-based duos that we're hearing so much about these exactly, days. Exactly, okay. exactly. And they're so cool. And, and as I said, very smooth. You know, we are going to hear, uh, it's from their new album. The group is called Tapioca and the song's called Lagoas de Ruanda or The Lagoons of Rwanda. Let's have a listen. You are listening to The Curator, our weekly highlight show here on Monaco Radio. And now it's time for Tall Stories. Andrew Tuck peers inside one of Palma's many shuttered courtyards to review a breathtaking property ordinarily concealed from public view. The old town of Palma de Mallorca is a confusion of streets and twisting alleys. You head into this maze, confident that this time you'll get to your destination without a hitch, only to find yourself, some 20 minutes later, back at the very spot where you started. It doesn't help that the old town sweeps up and down hill, endlessly discombobulating your sense of direction. But there's something else that confuses and confounds in this city. And that's the way that buildings seem determined to go incognito, to keep what lies beyond their anonymous, unadorned facades a secret. You might glimpse a church door, but would never guess, until someone shows you, that tranquil cloisters lie just beyond its walls. You spot an elegantly proportioned house, but its shutters are closed tight like the eyelids of a comatose giant. Occasionally, you will come to a padlocked set of gates that stand guard over an inner courtyard, a private world that you will not be able to access without invitation. All you can do is to press your face up to the bars and admire the architecture. Well, what you can see of it. Perhaps a set of graceful stairs that sweep up into the darkness and the potted aspidistras and palm trees that somehow survive in these sun-deprived inner sanctums. These courtyards, or patios as they're known here, would have once been the busy arrivals and departure halls for grand houses, where carriages would await, chickens strut and tradesfolk come to sell their wares. And while some of these grand houses have been converted into apartments or deluxe inns, it's surprising how many aristocratic families still live beyond those gates. Perhaps the finest of these courtyards belongs to Cambibot, a palace with true-to-form, plain, unembellished exterior walls. I'd walked past its gates many times, wondering about the forlorn carriages gathering dust, 
the life that seemed to take place here just out of view. Then I discovered that there was a way to get inside, not just by rocking up, but by booking a tour. And so, a few weeks ago, as I approached the gates, a miracle happened. A young woman appeared from the depths of the building with a key I was in. The history of Cambebot runs back to the 1500s, but the house that exists today owes most of the reforms undertaken in the 1700s by the first Marquis de Bibot. The Marquis used his extreme makeover of the palace to honour the new Bourbon king, Felipe V, who had given him his smart new title. Rich furnishings were commissioned, a new coat of arms placed on the staircase, paintings bought, and on the first floor, a bedroom was constructed for when the king came to visit. As it happens, he never came, even though he donated the silk that makes the bed's handsome canopy. The unslept-in bed still sits there. We saw it. It didn't look very comfy. The young woman who gave us our tour revealed that she was a descendant of the Marquis, but only recently started living here after the palace was inherited by her father. It's an extraordinary place to call home, but perhaps a little short of creature comforts. There was a distinct lack of heating. As she walked around, kept cosy by several layers of clothing, I didn't overly envy her. But perhaps the most magical part of the visit was for once simply not feeling like this was a city of hidden secrets, of mysterious inner lives that you might never know about, but rather a place that, if you persevered, would allow you to pass the gate to be on the inside even if it was only for an hour or two. And now, Monaco's design editor, Nick Muniz, ponders the shift to simplified logos across fashion houses and asks whether sans-serif fonts are here to stay. There's been a pattern in recent years of brands from automakers and tech companies to clothing labels simplifying logos. In the fashion world, graphic emblems were deleted from brand guides while word marks moved from serif to sans-serif fonts, with accents and strokes dropped from letter forms. It was a logical step for many companies, with the simpler forms readily readable and usable at a range of scales and on a range of mediums, whether on a phone screen or screen printed on a shirt. But the tide appears to be turning. This after Burberry, which began using a sans-serif logo wordmark in 2018, recently joined the likes of Bottega Veneta and Salvatore Ferragamo in reverting to a serif typeface. It has also reintroduced its equestrian night motif from 1909 in a new shade of light blue. Burberry's move should be lauded. Why? Well, the changes mark a return not only to the brand's roots, but to the very essence of the need for branding, to make a company readily recognisable and stand out among its competitors. In sansing the sans-serif font and moving away from word marks that look similar to those of other fashion houses, Burberry has brought some visual distinction to its brand. From an identity and marketing perspective, it makes sense too. Burberry, under new creative director Daniel Lee, is attempting to reassert itself as one of the top international luxury brands. To do this, it needs to tap into its heritage. Serif fonts, unlike sans-serif typefaces, which were popularised in the 20th century, have been used since antiquity, and so carry the necessary weight and sense of history. 
this move by Burberry is a reminder that adjusting logos and word marks to follow a trend or pair better with new technology can strip away a brand's all-important heritage. And for those concerned about a move towards sameness, as other fashion houses likely follow suit, fear not. Serif fonts allow for more differentiation between typefaces thanks to the accents and strokes on letters. The serif, then, can be safely welcomed back. And finally, on the curator, this week Monaco's Chris Chermak heads to Eastern Market in Washington's Capitol Hill neighborhood. The market, which celebrates its 105th anniversary this year, offers a diverse culinary mix that goes far beyond traditional American fare. My name is Doreen, Doreen Kwasi, and I'm from the Ivory Coast, a small country in West Africa, right? So French-influenced. We don't make a lot of noise. We're not well-known, you know, especially in the States. But, you know, I quickly realized that there's a lot of us here. We feel, you know, by opening a restaurant, because there's a lot of people who, from the same country who come in. Doreen Kwasi has been running a popular West African chicken stand called Spicy Water for around six years. We start with the beef kebab sandwich, chicken kebab sandwich, shrimp kebab sandwich. We have a chicken salad bowl and beef salad bowl, avocado salad bowl. And the shrimp salad bowl, you know, some people can have avocados with that. We also have plantains and fries, you know, and our special chipotle sauce that we make in-house, right? Is, you know, we had to make sure that we, we had, like, a, a, an excellent baguette, right? So... Where do you get the baguettes, out of curiosity? Uh, oh, uh, that's, that's, that would be the secret. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that, that would be the secret, you know, um, because people ask me all the time where I get the baguette from. I don't want to tell them. <laughs> Shortly after the pandemic, he opened up his own bricks-and-mortar restaurant in another part of the city called U Street. But he still runs his popular stand here at Eastern Market on weekends. The market is a vibrant market. You know, you have, of course, me, authentic West African. You also have a Jamaican lady here. You have a vegan lady. She's been here for a long time. And you have the burrito guys, the Mexicans. Also, you have another guy who he does some amazing lime juices. You have the crepe guy. Uh, we also now have a Pakistani cuisine. So in that small area, you, you find, you know, a lot of different food, you know, different cultures, which is very good because we, we need that mix. So uh, that's the reason why people come to Eastern Market, you know. They, they find a little bit of everything. <laughs> Eastern Market is located on Capitol Hill, one of Washington's oldest neighborhoods. It includes the seat of America's legislature, the Capitol, walk just a few blocks southeast of the Capitol building, down Pennsylvania Avenue to 7th and 8th Street. And you'll find yourself in a bustling community of restaurants and bars, condos and older colonial-style townhouses. So there are easily four times the number of restaurants here now than there were when I was a kid in the 70s, um, which is exciting because it means there's more choice, there's more uh, diversity. This is Mary Quillian Helms, owner of a popular low-key tavern called Mr. Henry's Restaurant. Her family has owned Mr. Henry's since 1971. Her father won it in a poker game. I think it's the neighborhood that helps make it an interesting place to be a destination for food. Because you come and you, you're you not in a 
you're not in a kitschy touristy area and by and large you don't have chain restaurants here mom and pop isn't quite the right word because there are a lot of professional chefs that own the restaurants here but they are neighborhood restaurants mary is also the president of the board of directors for eastern market main street an association that lobbies for the community Mary says the local neighborhood and its food scene has grown exponentially in the last few years. So you've got a few restaurants like this and, and Tunny Cliffs that have been here a long time, and then you've got some that have been here more like 20 years, like The Barrel and Joselitos is, is newer. Um, and then we've got some that have literally just opened, like The Duck and the Peach and La Cucina. And then there's a, there's a new Ukrainian restaurant that's going to open here in a couple of weeks. Now, one of the things that singles out this neighborhood is the mixed crowd. You'll get tourists visiting the capital, but you'll also get a diverse mix of locals from the surrounding neighborhood, and even top politicians. People like Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell and Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg are regular frequenters who live nearby and appreciate the low-key nature of the vibe. And that is one of the other things that many of the restaurants here will do, is if we have a politician that comes in, Pete Buttigieg and his partner. Um, you know, they found Mr. Henry's when they came to D.C. because we're very gay-friendly. And they come in and we don't make a big deal out of it, right? So they're just people in the neighborhood having, having, a, having a bite to eat and a, and a beer. At the center of this community is Eastern Market, one of the oldest continually operating markets in the United States, celebrating its 150th anniversary this year. Eastern Market itself has been through a lot over the years. The place not only survived COVID, but it survived a fire that heavily damaged the market hall back in 2007. There's a daily market that sits inside the historic building, while a farmer's arts, crafts, and food market sets up outside on the weekends and some weekdays. It's not the swankiest upscale foodie market in Washington. That title would probably go to Union Market a few kilometers north of here, but it is the most down-to-earth. See, yeah, this market got a lot of history, so I guess that's just, that's the foundation of it right there because the market been here for so long and been through so many different things, to tell you the truth. Michael here runs a stand of jams made by his aunt, but he's also a fan of the market in general. The, every weekend, every Saturday or Sunday, I be out here. Uh, uh, we got Olivia with soaps, my uh, farmer's people. They uh, support us with some of the uh, fresh fruit. We get some of the fresh fruit they get over there. Man, we be helping each other out. <laughs> and in terms of food, there isn't really a particular cuisine that singles out Eastern Market as much as a style. A lot of home cooking and traditional recipes. There's an institution inside called Market Lunch, a U.S. diner-style establishment which has 32 seats around one long table. It makes a roaring trade for brunch on weekends. Everyone talks about the blueberry wheat pancakes. But beyond your classic American fare, one of the things that singles out this neighborhood is its surprising diversity of people and cuisines. From the West African chicken served by Duraine, we come to the vegan home stylings of Zoe. We do kale salad, collard greens, our jerk chicken, cauliflower, so just enjoy. Well, thank you very much. <laughs> You're welcome, thank you. I appreciate that. Ooh. Thank you. We actually been at this um, Eastern Market location for 10 years now. I grew up vegan, so I've never had meat, and uh, my goal was to just 
introduce and show people that vegan um, could be good and delicious. So we make our own falafels. I chose that because um, I grew up in Israel. You know, falafel is a big thing in the Middle East. So just had to do that. And then we do a barbecue tofu ribs that is um, sandwich and a um, vegan steak and cheese sandwich. And it comes on the pita with lettuce, tomatoes, onions, pickles, and banana peppers. So it does have all that yumminess. Later this year, Eastern Market will officially celebrate 150 years in the business. But don't expect anything too flashy. For one thing, the market is run by the local government, rather than some private venture with a big marketing budget. But it's also in keeping with the general vibe of the place. An unpretentious food and farmer's market in what can otherwise be something of a pretentious city. So here's hoping Eastern Market stays just as it is for another 150 years. Thank you, Chris, and that's all we've got time for this week's edition of The Curator. The show was produced by San Impi and presented by me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Join us again next week, and thank you for listening. <laughs>